Good morning, church. For those of you who might be new um, or worshiping with us online for the very first time, I want to say welcome to everyone. My name is Brian. I'm one of the youth pastors on staff. Um, we are glad that you are, are all here with us. And I want to say a very special warm welcome to all of the mothers that are in the room. We are so thankful for you. Uh, a wise person once said, if at first you don't succeed, try again the way that your mother told you to do it the first time. <laughs> and in giving advice to first-time uh, soon-to-be mothers, the actress Jennifer Gardner uh, said, enjoys every moment that you can uh, before you become a parent enjoying a bathroom by yourself. Because for the next 10, 10 years of your life, the next decade, there will always be a child in there with you. Um, and if you're a mom, you can probably attest to that fact. Moms, we are truly grateful for your sacrifice, your example, the tenacity and fierceness that you have, your love, your faith, your faithfulness, your meals, or maybe your attempted meals, and so much more. We literally would not be here without you. So thank you for, for who you are and what you do. Today we are continuing, if you have uh, your own Bible with you and you'd like to turn there, we are continuing in Romans chapter 8, where we've been camped out for the last two weeks in a row. We are going to be uh, putting the bow on chapter 8. And uh, before we get there, I'd like to tell you about uh, an opportunity I had in 2016 uh, to take some of our high school students to Belize. Um, and we, we partnered with um, Praying Pelican uh, Ministries. My cousin Josh and his family were there uh, serving as long-term missionaries. And uh, we, we prayerfully considered to team up with them and to take our high school students down there as a short-term team uh, and partner with the local church in Belize and uh, had some great opportunities to do some incredible ministry throughout the week. Uh, and sometimes when we go on these international uh, mission trips, we have uh, small opportunities or small windows to go out and experience some of the culture. So we had a half-day trip planned uh, to go over to the western part of Belize in this district called Cayo and uh, got to experience some of the Mayan culture. And we traveled by bus um, up to as far as this bus could get us up into the top of this, uh, this mountain. And we were going to get to see one of the Mayan ruins that was there, uh, this place called Zanantanich. And so we got off of the bus and we started hiking up a really long path. Uh, and it seemed like the path was just never ending. We passed a couple current ar archaeological dig sites uh, that we have pictured here where there are still uh, digs where they're continuing to find more of, of the culture that's been buried beneath the soil. And we continued to hike and continued to hike. And finally, um, we, we got to where they said that we had arrived. And I was looking around me in this next picture at what I thought was Zanantanich. And I was honestly a little less than impressed. Um, I was like, gosh, we just traveled by bus so far away. We hiked all the way up here. And this is the, the, the Mayan ruin that they have, have led us to. And so our tour guide was giving us uh, some history lessons about the Belize uh, Mayan culture there. And uh, then he said, now, follow me. And he led us through this clearing, and we had this incredible view of Zanatanich that stands 600 feet above sea level. It was breathtaking, to say the least, and not, not only because of the view that it gave us, but we got to climb all those stairs that you see, and literally it took our breath away from the amount of stairs that we had to climb to, to reach the top. Perhaps you have been on an adventure before, 
where you took in some incredible views and were left breathless by what you encountered, this is perhaps what we might experience when we come to this last paragraph of Romans chapter 8, which has been called the pinnacle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Commentators have called these verses of chapter 8 of Romans a hymn of assurance, a triumph song, and the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. And yet, all of these phrases don't even do justice for what Paul is, is articulating in this passage. It is truly a mountaintop passage of scripture. It is the Everest of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and thus the highest peak in the highest Himalayan range of all of scripture. So far, we have made our way up the steep ascent of doctrine in the first half of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And as we continue in this series, we're going to have some lower vistas that will be sure to have a great view to take in. But for now, join me as we experience our tour guide, the Apostle Paul, whose greatest desire is to reveal some great truths found in God's Word. And together, we are going to explore Five unanswerable questions. Now, some people might say, well, why are these unanswerable? They're kind of hypothetical questions. He poses some questions for us that we can learn, and actually there are answers to them, but uh, the way that they are posed will leave us um, as a way of, he's throwing out challenges that we as believers might face or might see, see um, opposition to, but they are unanswerable because the answer is that nothing can defeat God's plan for us or harm us. They are unanswerable because nothing can hinder God's plan for his redeemed and beloved children. So we begin with question number one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8 verse 31. The answer, of course, to this question is nobody. Nobody can be against us. No thing can be against us. And most scholars would suggest that when Paul writes, what shall we say of these things? He has at least in mind the things that he had just got done writing about earlier in chapter eight, perhaps even uh, chapter seven. But really it's hard to frame chapters seven uh, and eight without all of the content that comes before that. So it's like Paul is saying, what shall we say of all that's been said, that said thus far? Think of it like this. There's two ways to look at a stained glass window. You can either look at all of the little individual pieces that make up a stained glass window, and you can examine the color and their shape and uh, perhaps the structure in which it's being assembled. Or you can take a step back once stained glass has been assembled, and you can look at a stained glass window with the sun peering through and take in the entire picture for all that it is worth. So what Paul is inviting us to do is to take these individual pieces of glass that he's assembled thus far, pieces of doctrine like justification and God's foreknowledge and predestination and God's calling and glorification, and he's taking all of these important theological terms and he's inviting us to step back and look at them all together for all that it is worth. And what does he say should be our takeaway when we're looking at this beautiful, picturesque window of theology? He says that God is for us. God is for us. But it doesn't always seem like that, right? Like many of us as believers, we have faced immense opposition and, and challenges to our faith before. And for the believer, from a theological standpoint, there's at least three major categories that, the enemy, that are enemies of the Christian. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
And with these in mind, I know that, at least in my own personal life, I have faced what I felt like has been more spiritual warfare going on in the past 15 or so months throughout this pandemic than I think I've ever faced in my entire life. I've prayed and asked God to show me His ways and to mold me and to, and to make me His, to soften my heart where it's become hardened. I've hated to see the division that has taken place within, um, the, not, not our church, but just the church as a whole within Christianity. And uh, then that's not even throwing in what's been going on on social media, um, all the division that has taken place there. And sometimes it's really hard not to just jump in and, and to stir the pot a little bit, right? To, to, to weigh in on, on, on these hot topic matters. I know that I've um, been the victim of this uh, and, and even done things myself where I probably have said some things that I really should not have said on social media. And as a result of that, I actually deactivated my Facebook account a couple um, uh, over a year ago uh, because of all of the, the strife and the division that I was seeing taking place between my friends and family and, and Christians that I was like, wow, that's kind of shocking a little bit. Now, I'm not saying that you should delete your social media accounts, but I'm talking about my own warfare that's been going on because of the season that I've been in. I've questioned my role in this church. I've questioned my, my calling into ministry. And guess what? These were lies from the enemy. When we face opposition, it's hard not to allow it to get into our minds to not let it stir our hearts and to break us down and to tear us apart and to create division. And that's nothing more than what the enemy would love for each one of us who've been built up and know this truth that God is for us. If you question the fact that God is for us, you have to look no further than the empty cross because God's work for us through his son and that cross on the hill in Golgotha ensures that God's continued grace toward us now and forever and God does not leave us to impersonal, unplanned circumstances. No, I believe that God is much bigger than that. God determines in a very real way my destiny, which is glorification, and your destiny, which is glorification. Whatever else happens to us in this world, whatever opposition we might face, we should know that God is ultimately for us, and that knowledge can be both humbling and comforting. And it's because of this promise that even before Paul wrote these words, that I, I think that there are people and examples of this that we can read in the Old Testament who were assured of God's presence with them and that God was for them. People like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, or Shad, Mesh, and Abe, as I like to call them with the students, um, who did not waver in their faith even during pending persecution. They were being instructed by King Nebuchadnezzar to worship a false god, to bow down to a golden image that he had erected. And look at what bold proclamation of faith this is in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. After being told that they would face persecution if they did not bow down and worship this false, false god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our god whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And if he will deliver us out of your hand, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, O king, 
we have God on our side. Come at, come at us with the best of what you've got. Because they knew the way that Paul did, that God is for us. And Paul is telling us that because God is on our side, nothing in all of the universe can possibly take us down. Even when life is tough, which life can get really hard, God is for us. Question number two that Paul poses comes from verse 32. And it says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God spared no expense. If he was willing to give us his only son to die for sinners like me and like you, what could God possibly hold back from us? Paul uses a word in verse 32 that would be easy to miss if we were to read over it too quickly. It's a Greek word called idion, where he says, he did not spare his own son why does Paul use this qualifier? Like, why, why did he not just say, he who did not spare his son? Well, in this chapter, he's talking about this topic of adoption. And, and he's trying to distinguish God's own son and the benefits that he has given to his son, Jesus, that we are also recipients of because of our, our, our um, in, encompassed state of adoption through his son, Jesus. Paul is saying this, look at the extent to which God has gone to ensure our ultimate victory. He has spared nothing to bring it about, not even his own son. And here Paul refers to this inheritance that the father has laid upon the son, which is being shared with us in our participation in the benefits of what rightfully belongs to Christ alone. God delivers up his own son for us, and in doing so, he's willing to give us everything that he has promised to, and set apart for his son. Now, we should not interpret this as God's just going to give us everything that we've ever needed or wanted. Like, you know, I want the newest bike that's been out. You know, God's not going to give us the newest bike. Uh, maybe he will, but th that's not what he's, this is not a prosperity gospel type of verse. Instead, God does not redeem us to leave us. He redeems us to conform us and he will continue doing so until he brings us home and glorifies us. Has anybody ever been the recipient of an incredible act of generosity? I know I have. Um, I've been out to eat uh, with my family before and uh, sitting down um, after our meal's over and I'm waiting for the waiter or waitress to bring us our check. I keep waiting and keep waiting only to find out that there was a church member that saw my family out to eat and they picked up the tab and, and bought us dinner. And um, that's an incredible act of generosity. Or there have been people uh, who have allowed us to use their vacation homes to, to take the youth ministry down uh, for, for a trip um, at the beach. Or even my own family to use a lake house for a week. Um, those are incredible acts of generosity. So what, and, and there's something really great about being the recipient of a, of a generous person, right? Like it, it fills you up and it's like, wow, what a great sacrifice. Thank you for for loving um, in such an incredible, tangible way. How about you? What have you been the benefactor of? If you are in Christ, there's at least one thing that you have been the incredible recipient of, and that is the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. God holds nothing back to pass along the benefits for his son to us all. Think of it this way. If I were to take my family down to Disney World, um, I, I did a little quick search uh, for what it takes uh, roughly 
for a five-day vacation down to Disney, including park tickets, lodging, uh, meals, and all, all of the things that's encompassed in a, in a week or five days or so at Disney. The average cost for a family of four is $4,200. This is why I take my kids down to the creek and tell them just to imagine, <laughs> just imagine it's Animal Kingdom, right? Like there's all kinds of great critters all around that you can take in. Well, imagine that I budgeted and I saved my pennies and we finally pulled the trigger and decided to make the, the 10 or so hour trek to get from, from here down to Disney. And we pull into the famous entrance at Disney World. And after having spent all of this money, I see a sign that says parking is going to cost $50. What if I said to my family, that's it. We can't do it. I refuse to pay $50. To park my vehicle in this park, my wife would turn to me and she would say, Brian, we have spent this much money. You're going to pay $50 to park this vehicle and we are going to have a great time. It's kind of what Paul is stating in verse 32. God has already made a really great purchase and he's going to take care of the parking. He's going to take care of every other ancillary thing that's going to come our way because he's already done the heavy lifting. If God is going to put forward his own beloved son in our place, he's going to see to the ongoing work of our salvation and he will see us through to glorification when we enter his kingdom one day. Question number three, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Once again, the answer, help me out church, is no one, nobody, nobody can bring a charge against God's people because it's God who justifies. Not even the best prosecution can handle a case against God or a case against us. Um, not Matlock, not Judge Judy, not even the top law firm in the world, which according to Google is Kirkland and Ellis out of Chicago, who has revenue in excess of $4 billion. I would imagine they have a pretty good track record of successful cases uh, in order to do that. Not any single one of these instances or entities can possibly bring a charge against God's people because it's God who justifies. Have you ever thought about God being a just God? There are likely many things that we want justice for in the world, but Paul reminds us that we are deserving of God's justice. And he reminds us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we have all missed the mark. And because of that, we all deserve God's wrath and we all deserve God's punishment. My two favorite words in all of the scriptures, but God. God made a way for us. He doesn't leave us in that state. He shows us his love and his mercy. And he's rightfully entitled to, just, to, to the just part of us, uh, of um, judging our sins and stacking that against us. And if you're a believer, you are justified regardless of who accuses you. The accuser, Satan, will certainly try to accuse you and bring up your sins of the past. And I can uh, remember as a child, I called into WBFJ one time. They were doing some kind of uh, radio prize game of some kind, and I happened to win a CD bundle uh, from whatever the game was that I, I played as like a 10-year-old. And so I got like a Point of Grace CD and a Carmen CD and something else. And if you grew up in the 90s Christian music, you know who I'm talking about. Well, uh, Carmen, 
um, God bless him, he's like one of the cheesiest music writers that's ever been around in, in Christian music. Uh, he's got some really great stuff, but I was struck by this song that was on Carmen's CD called The Courtroom, where it, it painted this visual depiction through song of what this picture of justice looks like. And if it's okay with you, I'm just going to quote a little bit from the song here. It says, God, and, and this is Satan trying to, once again, Satan trying to stack up all of the sins for me as a, as a believer in Jesus. Satan's trying to throw out a case to God against me. And he says, God, you see this worthless piece of trash over here. This one is a sinner to the core. This one's committed adultery, cursed his neighbor, stolen money, been to drugs, alcohol, and even more. This hopeless wretch has even slandered his friends. And by the guilty face, the whole courtroom can tell that to a moral certainty and beyond any reasonable doubt, this one deserves eternal judgment in hell. Now the words of accusation still echo your sin thrown in your face. Then God opens the book where every deed is recorded and reviews your records of disgrace. And God says, well, the book says you did this, this, and this, and everything you are accused of today. Now before I sentence you to hell forever, are there any last words you have to say? But before you can speak up, on the other side of the courtroom, someone speaks up. It is the one and only Son of God, revealed in time and space. And he is your defense attorney, and he has never lost a case. Ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of the courtroom is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he jump, Jesus jumps up and he says, Now wait a minute, judge, I got something to say. May I remind you that on a cross 2,000 years ago, I washed his sins away. I was crucified, I died, and they put me in a tomb, and about the midnight hour, the power of God hit me, and I walked out of that grave alive and well with resurrection power. You see, Satan has no power over us as believers because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done. We know how Satan's story ends. Nobody can bring a case against those whom God calls his own. As Pastor David has mentioned previously in the series, God has already justified us. If the one who before, before whom we are guilty has declared us not guilty, then what kind of fear is there of any accusation that anybody could possibly ever bring against us? I'm reminded of, in the New Testament, an encounter that some really religious people have with Jesus and a woman who was caught up in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees were these ultra-religious folks at the time, and they tried to bring an extreme case of an extreme sinner before Jesus to see what kind of accusation he's going to say against her. We pick up in John 8, 4, where they put this woman on a pedestal, on a display. And they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And then Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Anytime I read this passage, 
I always swap myself with this woman that's been caught up in adultery. And I think about all of the ways that I could be in the same exact scenario, but God and his just and loving mercy extends that grace, that undeserving grace to me. We can be confident that God is for us because he's already justified us through his son, son's death, burial, and resurrection, and nobody can bring a charge against us because it is God who justifies. And Paul continues with the next question. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, this is the, kind of the same question that he had just posed in the last one in verse 33, with even more of a Christ-centered response this time. He says, who can condemn us? And the answer is, church, nobody. Nobody can condemn us because Christ is already condemned for me. My sin was condemned by God on the cross. So what possible condemnation is left to be stacked up against me? Well, I'd like to focus on the last part of this passage, or this sentence, though. It says, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God who is interceding, indeed is interceding for us. What a beautiful image that is. Jesus is interceding for us. Christ sits at the right hand of, the God, of, of, of God the Father, occupying the highest place of authority. And I think of um, movies that perhaps I've seen where uh, there was a, a king depicted and he's sitting on his throne. And um, or, or I think about like King Xerxes is, is depicted in a movie that I saw uh, one time. And he just has his hands out receiving worship from all the peasants that are below him. And that's what Jesus absolutely has the right to do. But that's not what he's doing. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he is interceding for each and every one of us. What kind of incredible beauty that is. Louis Burkhoff, he was an American Dutch uh, Reformed theologian in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And he said this, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds, which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious, and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease, and that we may come out victorious in the end. The truth of the matter is that Christ is far more dedicated to us and committed to us than we are to him. When we stumble and we fall and we mess up and sin, remember that Christ is praying for you unceasingly, fervently, and successfully. And that leads us to our last question for the day, question number five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Here we stand before God, justified, having no condemnation to fear, with Christ as our advocate. What in the world is there that can demolish or destroy that kind of love that's been set up for us? Paul lists various things that he was likely familiar with, trying to throw out hypothetical things that could possibly ensnare or us or, or, or try to separate us from the love of God. He says, shall trouble or hardship or per persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? 
Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who might think that there are things that can separate us because um, there are people who sometimes equate uh, their closeness with God with their most recent feeling of being blessed um, or feeling the sense of, of, of the Holy Spirit high. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I've experienced that before in my own life. But all of a sudden, when something bad happens, all of a sudden they turn away from God and they're like, God, I thought you were supposed to be for me. And that is true. God is for us. And sometimes bad things do happen. Sometimes it can feel like we are very distant from God. But there's nothing that ever separates us from God's love for us. And sometimes it's in those seasons where God is trying to teach us trying to mold us, trying to show us a different part of his love, a different part of his character, trying to expand our horizons and our search for who he is and what he has done for us. Have you ever felt distant from God or apathetic in your Christian walk? I know I have. I know I've felt that way before. There have been times where I've had to even preach on a Sunday morning or teach our students on a, on a Sunday afternoon and I, I, right before I get ready to take the stage, I, I start thinking to myself, what am I doing being the one up standing before God's people when I'm going through this myself, when I have my own battles that I'm facing? But I've found that the more inadequate that I feel, or sometimes the less that I feel like teaching, the more I really feel dependent on the power of God to be at work within me. And I simply must be his vessel to allow him to do the heavy lifting. I believe that we shouldn't be fair-weathered Christians. So when trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or whatever the fill-in-the-blank is for what the challenging times are that you might face, know that it cannot separate you from Christ's love. Nor should they separate our love from Christ. The true Christian continues to love Christ throughout all these things. It's, it's kind of a two-way affair. Trouble tends to increase my passion for Christ. If I'm facing a difficult season, I'm like, Jesus, I need you more now than ever. And because of our sense for need of Christ is being intensified, when we face hardship, we don't flee from Christ, but rather turn to him all the more. When I'm persecuted, I may be tempted to deny Christ with my mouth to get relief from the persecution, but during persecution is where we need Christ the most. And Paul continues as we wrap up this passage. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You might feel that way at times in life. You might feel like you're just a sheep on the way to be slaughtered. But Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The phrase more than conquerors is translated from a rarely used word um, in the Greek called hypernikamen, which means to utterly defeat beyond the norm, to utterly defeat beyond the norm. One commenter, uh, commentator says that it's like he's calling us super conquerors. For us to take arms against an enemy who is more than human, God has equipped, equipped each and every one of us as believers to be hypernikamen, to be more than conquerors. And I might lose a couple of uh, the people here, or maybe if you're watching online, but just stick with me for a moment, okay? I like the ACC, and as a Wake fan, I, can't, I was reared up in a, a Christian home, great Bible-believing parents and grandparents who taught me really well at a young age, ABC. 
You've probably heard of your ABCs before. Anybody but Carolina? I told you I was going to lose some of you. I like in basketball, I like for it to be a really close game. Because you never know what's going to happen until those zeros come, come all the way across the clock at the very end of the game. And then, and then a winner is declared, right? Like, I love for it to be a close game. Unless Carolina's playing. And then I like for it to be a hypernicomen. I like for it to be utterly destroyed beyond measure. Like, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, Carolina fans. That's just how I was raised. Don't hold it against me. Paul tells us, though, that we are more than conquerors because of whose team we are on. We, too, are folks who prevail completely. We, too, are hyper-conquerors through Christ in us. And Paul brings this scriptural mountaintop passage with extraordinary views to this grand conclusion. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul lists a number of things that could possibly disrupt or rupture our relationship with Christ, things like death or life or demons, present, future powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. He could have said it in one sentence. Nothing, brothers, nothing, sisters, can possibly set us, separate us from lo the love of God. That's the point he's making. Nothing in all the universe can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we know that we ultimately are going to be safe and secure from all, all alarms. I'm reminded of the great hymn that I grew up uh, singing uh, in my home church. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace of mind. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning on the everlasting arms of our Lord. So what can we do with this content that we have unpacked in verses 32 to 39? Well, let me offer four ways that I believe we can apply this to our lives this week, this month, this year, moving forward. Number one is to allow these truths to lead you to worship. Knowing the fact that God is for you should allow us to have this awe and this reverence for the Lord that inspires us to come before his throne and to sing his great name and to proclaim what he has done for us. Praise him for his sacrifice. Praise him for his love. Praise him for his grace and his mercy. Number two is to allow these truths to lift you from despair. Allow these truths to lift you from despair. I believe that there are examples of people found all throughout Scripture who did this so well. Job lost um, everything that he had. He lost family. He lost his children. He lost his um, income. He lost his health. He, he had um, gotten to this point where his wife said, please, after all of this, please just curse God so that we can be done with all of these challenges being faced our way. And Job said, no, blessed be the name of the Lord. He was lifted from his despair in the midst of all of the challenging things that he was facing because he knew that God was for him. David, in the midst of all the opposition that great King David faced, he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David knew that God was for him. 
And then no matter what challenge he might face in the future, that God was going to be there and allow him to be lifted from despair. Allow these, number three, allow these truths to show you what unites diverse believers in community. Allow these truths to show you what unites diverse believers in community. You might look and feel different from the person sitting right next to you, or right in front of you, or right behind you. But one truth is sure, and there's a shared fellowship, a koinonia, if you will, of, of what unites us in Christ Jesus. And because God is for us, we should stand united with our brothers and sisters and encourage one another. I believe now more than ever, our church needs to encourage other people around us. There are so many people who are, who are down and who need to be lifted up and, and shown the love of God. We have a great opportunity to be united in who we are and whose we are. And lastly, allow these truths to embolden you for mission. Allow these truths to embolden you for mission. Holiness means that we are set apart, that we should look different from the world around us. And God calls us to look different from this world around us. So how does knowing that nothing can pull us away from, the, from God's love, how does that change what we might face this week? How does knowing that God's already defeated our spiritual enemy how does that embolden you to live a life that points others to Jesus? If you could do anything to change the world, knowing that God has your back, knowing that God is leading the way and giving you the charge, what is he leading you to do? It's a great question to ponder. Let me pray for us as we conclude our time together. Father, we thank you for this true mountaintop passage of scripture. We know that your church is facing a whole lot of challenging moments. There are people who've seen loved ones pass away, jobs that have been lost, health diagnoses that have been um, given that are not favorable. I pray for anybody who's faced a challenging season that this scripture would lift them from despair, that they would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are for us, that you want what's best for your children. We thank you that you, God, have already defeated our enemy and that you allow us to be more than conquerors and that because of that, we can face any kind of challenge that might be facing us um, knowing that you are there with, with full support of your children that you love dearly. God, for anybody here today who's not yet a believer, I pray that you would grip their hearts and that you would allow these truths to penetrate and that you would allow them to know beyond any shadow of doubt how much you, the God of the universe, wants a des desperately wants a relationship with them. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen.